pick up in this morning's passage, Jesus, uh, many of you know, he's just been taken into custody in the wake of the, the greatest kiss of betrayal that the world has ever known. Led down the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem and into the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, where he would undergo the first of several trials. We see all of those uh, before our time said and done this morning. Peter, having just denied Jesus in the middle of Caiaphas's courtyard, just as Jesus had predicted Peter would do before the, the crowing of the rooster. That's where we pick up this morning's passage. If you look at chapter 22, verse 63, uh, Luke tells us, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. And they also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Here, Jesus finds himself at the mercy of a, a group of Jewish guards who offer him anything but mercy, blindfolding him, taking turns swinging at him like a pinata, challenging him to prove himself a prophet in identifying with, with each swing of the bat, which of them is up to the plate, so to speak. It's a moment of of great irony, the first of many in this morning's passage, as we'll see, as their very own words, think about this, their very own words and actions in this moment prove to be the fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus himself having three times predicted his own suffering, rejection, and death. They have no idea what they're saying in this moment. In response to their mocking words for Jesus to prophesy, Jesus could have said, I already have, and you're the fulfillment. And yet Jesus willingly submits himself to their mockery, having come to establish our redemption through his humiliation. Paul talks about that in Philippians chapter 2. It's a fulfillment of one of the many suffering servant passages in the book of Isaiah, chapter 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Accused of blasphemy Jesus is, though it's those doing the, the mocking and the beating who are truly guilty of blasphemy, verse 65. This is a declaration on Luke's part of who Jesus is, what he's been doing since the very beginning of this book of the Bible. The Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God, all of those titles soon to come in this morning's passage. Luke continues in verse 66, when day came, the assembly of the elders and of the people uh, gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and, and they led him, they led Jesus away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. Going back to last week, those uh, having arrested Jesus could have done so in the light of day, that is, had they not feared the people. Numbering Jesus with the transgressors, going back to verse 37 of this chapter, all the while proving themselves to be the lawless ones. Jesus exposing them for having stepped outside of the bounds of true justice and seeking to make their arrest in the dark of night. As I mentioned last week, like a pickpocket in a darkened alley. That very night, having established their preliminary hearing in the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, knowing good and well that, that those kinds of legal proceedings, they carried with them no binding authority whatsoever. Which helps to explain the next day gathering, verse 66, a formal assembly of the elders, chief priests, and scribes, establishing the appearance of the legitimacy of the trial, though they had already determined the outcome in the dark of night. Here bringing no, no sort of formal accusation against Jesus, 
rather inviting him to incriminate himself. It's kind of strange. Proclaim yourself to be the Christ, the Messiah. It's a title that that we first saw in Luke's gospel account all the way back in chapter 2. As the angel said to the shepherds who were watching over their flock by night, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A Savior for the people. Good news for the world. The Son of the Divine. Jesus knows that that many still have heightened expectations of a political Messiah, one who would overthrow Roman tyranny and give Israel her political independence so that if Jesus declares himself to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Jewish leaders will have everything they need to bring Jesus before the Roman authorities as a, a threat to the Roman Empire. But he said to them, Luke goes on to tell us, if I tell you, you will not believe, And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus Jesus knows that these men have already made up their minds. And it doesn't matter what he says. If I tell you, you won't believe me. Our very understandings of Messiahship so vastly different from one another. And if I ask you, you won't answer in accordance with the, the truth. That is if you answer at all. Right, we've seen numerous times where Jesus asks a question and the religious leaders respond with silence, stupefied. They don't know what to say. Jesus here, <clears throat> he doesn't come right out and declare himself to, to be the Messiah, refusing to identify himself with their notions and, and expectations of what that even means. And yet he does identify himself by one of his favorite self-proclaimed titles, the Son of Man. That language coming from Daniel chapter 7 with its imagery of Jesus receiving power, glory, and authority to reign. Right? It's, it's another of, of the many great ironies in this morning's passage. The true king and judge of the world in this moment being judged by the world. The very one who will someday return to execute a trial of his own acting as the final judge and jury. Verse 70. So they all said, are you the son of God then? Jesus' words with their powerful Daniel 7 imagery carrying with them a gravity which leads the council to ask, "Are, are you saying that you're the son of God? And he said to them, you, you say that I am. Jesus indirectly embraces their claim, aware that that his understanding and their understanding are not one and the same. And yet it's enough to give them everything they need. Verse 71, they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. The claim to, to be the Messiah may have been foolish in the eyes of the religious leaders, but but it was no grounds for blasphemy. To claim to be the son of God, however, was a claim to deity. The religious leaders, they've been trying for quite some time to incriminate Jesus with his own words, here getting exactly what they'd been hoping for. In their minds, the the words of a blasphemer. And yet, Luke has made plain for us from the beginning that this Jesus of Nazareth is, in fact, the son of God. Declared so even before his birth. Luke chapter 1, verse 35, And the angel answered her, Mary, 
the, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. Here it is, the Son of God. Affirmed by the Father himself at Jesus' baptism. Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Spoken again by the Father on the Mount of Transfiguration. Luke chapter 9, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Acknowledged even by the demons. Going back to chapter 4, verse 41. Demons also came out of many crying, here it is, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. <clears throat> Acknowledged by the, the forces of evil in the spiritual realm, and yet the religious leaders deemed Jesus' response to the question of his sonship to be blasphemy. Anticipating his impending death in their minds as to be the end of his preposterous claims and yet that very death would inaugurate the beginning of his reign as the exalted son of God their very words in this moment filled with both irony and tragedy the very words think about this that a believer could shout from the rooftops it's our it's our song what further testimony do we need we have heard it ourselves from his own lips and therefore, we sing this morning. We receive the Lord's Supper this morning. We sit under the preaching of his word this morning. Verse 1, moving into chapter 23. And the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea and Samaria, forever canonized in the earliest Christian creeds for what we see in this morning's passage. Having traveled to the city of Jerusalem in order to, to make sure that there was order during the celebration of the Passover, surely fits with what we know about Pilate, one who ruled the Jewish and Samaritan people with harshness and cruelty. You may recall the, the group of Galileans going back to chapter 13, verse 1, having traveled to Jerusalem for worship around the time of, of the Passover, all of them slaughtered on the authority of an execution order by Pontius Pilate. We don't, we don't need the scriptures even to know that Pilate was a thorn in the flesh of the Jewish people under his watch. The Jewish historian Josephus, he includes several examples in his writings, things like Pilate attempting to bring pagan Roman symbols into Jerusalem, disregarding Jewish customs and practices. Things like taking money from the temple to build an aqueduct and then killing those who responded in anger. Here the, the Jewish leaders, they're fully aware that they have no right to invoke capital punishment on Jesus. After all, the, the Roman Empire would never allow a people under her reign to use their own legal processes to do away with each other, if for no other reason than the loss of taxes. 
And so the Jewish leaders bring Jesus before Pontius Pilate, hoping to see Jesus sent to the gallows. And in doing so, they know that any sort of charges on the basis of religious grounds would mean little to nothing to the Roman authorities. And so they, they incorporate political language as they speak to the governor in hopes that the Roman government will step in and bring charges of their own. Here accusing Jesus with misleading the nation, likely meaning some sort of insurrection or rebellion, accusing him too with forbidding people to pay tribute to Caesar. Clearly a lie on their part, as we know going back to chapter 20, that Jesus said to to give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Also accusing Jesus of declaring himself to be Christ, a king, an accusation meant to pit him against the great Caesar. Pilate asked him, natural question in light of those charges, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus, what do you, what do you say to these accusations? Are you a king? In Pilate's mind, seeing right in front of him a harmless man having just been beaten by a group of guards, how could this man possibly be the king of the Jews? How could he possibly be a threat to the Roman Empire? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. Here again, indirectly responding to yet another claim in such a way as to affirm that he is, in fact, the king of the Jews without fully affirming Pilate's notions of kingship with his response. You see this theme over and over again. Yes, I'm the Christ, I'm the Messiah, but you don't truly know what that means. Yes, I'm the son of man, but you don't truly know what that means. Yes, I'm the son of God, but you don't fully understand what that means. Yes, I'm the king of the Jews. You don't fully understand that either. Pilate said, verse 4, to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. This is the first of three declarations of Jesus' innocence on the part of Pontius Pilate. Maybe because he saw Jesus as no true threat to the empire. Perhaps because he saw through the schemes of the Jewish leaders. Maybe it was because it's the first time that he had ever stared into the eyes of true innocence. Regardless, we're told that the religious leaders were urgent, verse 5, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. They continue to insist that, that Jesus is spearheading some sort of insurrection, which is fascinating if you think about where we're going with Barabbas in the verses to come. As they cry out with greater urgency that the governor do something. Verse 6, Pilate starts to get a little uncomfortable in his own skin. Told that when he heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. It's clear at, at this point that Pilate doesn't want anything to do with this case. Caught in the crosshairs of an intensifying situation. And so he he asks, is If Jesus is a Galilean, knowing that if he is, Pilate can send him away to become someone else's problem. And the answer being yes, he he promptly sends Jesus to to Herod for examination. King Herod Antipas, the the son of Herod the Great. The man who married, you may recall, the ex-wife of his half-brother Philip and ultimately had John the Baptist in prison and beheaded because John rebuked him for all of his evils. 
the Messiah himself, and this is fascinating to consider, especially if you go back to chapters 1 and 2, where you see the, these back-to-back pairings of John the Baptist and Jesus, the forerunner and the Messiah. The Messiah himself now brought before the very man having ordered his forerunner's execution. Herod, too, in the city of Jerusalem for the feast, most scholars believe likely as a political tactic. Verse 8 tells us, When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. You may recall the, the Pharisees having told Jesus, going back to chapter 13, verse 1, Herod wants to kill you. Herod, a a deeply insecure man, Jesus all the while growing in influence. And yet it it seems as though Herod's motivations are a little little different at this point. Not so much hoping to see Jesus' head on a platter, but rather to see Jesus perform some sort of sign or or miracle. Meaning not according to, to most scholars that Herod is open to a willingness to believe, but rather wants to be entertained by this Jesus that he's been hearing so much about. And yet Luke tells us, verse 9, that he questioned Jesus at some length, but but Jesus made no answer. Not only does Jesus not put on a show for the great Herod, but he doesn't so much as speak a word in response to Herod's questioning. Perhaps knowing that that it wouldn't change anything, perhaps knowing that he didn't need to defend himself, though unjustly accused and attacked, trusting that the father would soon vindicate him and raising him from the dead. We know that there's an element of that because Peter would go on to write, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, he, Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Regardless of Motivation, Jesus' silence is surely the fulfillment of ancient prophecy. Again, the book of Isaiah, in this case, chapter 53, verse 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. At this point, we might be inclined to think that that such verses don't apply here. After all, there doesn't seem to be any sort of mistreatment on Herod's part that would match Isaiah 53. And yet Luke goes on to tell us in verse 10, the chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing Jesus and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Herod and his soldiers decide to have a little fun with Jesus, determining that if Jesus won't entertain them, they'll entertain themselves. So they put a robe on Jesus, likely one of Herod's hand-me-downs. And they mocked Jesus in regards to his claim to kingship, just as the guards had mocked Jesus in regards to his being a prophet. The story here, too, dripping with, with irony. I mean, think about this. Herod, the great ruler in this moment, acting like a mere jester 
in the mocking of Jesus in regards to his claim to kingship, all the while the true king, Jesus Christ, robed by his very own mockers in majesty. You can't make this stuff up. Herod, sending Jesus back to Pontius Pilate, the man who's done everything he can to get this case as far away from him as he possibly can, the two of them, Pilate and Herod, now buddies. Most likely in the political sense, not the the personal sense, uh, perhaps a a friendship born out of their recognition of and cooperation with, with one another in the handling of this highly emotionally charged trial. Perhaps driven by their their kindred disdain for or fear of of Jesus, which wouldn't be the first time we've seen enemies come together against Jesus in kindred spirit in Luke's gospel account. Luke goes on to tell us in verse 13, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. It's the second declaration of Jesus' innocence on the part of Pontius Pilate. In agreement with Herod, who too found no fault in Jesus. Pilate here trying to to establish some sort of compromise in in releasing Jesus, suggesting a good old-fashioned beating on the way out the door. Because, you know, beating innocent men, that's the way of true justice. They all cried out together. Luke goes on to tell us in verse 18, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. It was customary at the celebration of the Passover to release a prisoner chosen by the people. Perhaps as a symbol of the story of the Exodus, which was celebrated at that time of year, where God's people were freed from Egyptian shackles. So that here you you have Jesus and Barabbas here brought before the crowd in, in honor of that custom. The name Barabbas meaning son of the father, standing by the father's true son chief priests, the elders, instigating the cries of the crowd, a detail included in Matthew and Mark's gospel accounts. Crowd crying for the release of Barabbas, a true political insurrectionist. The very charge that they were bringing against Jesus of Nazareth, who was no insurrectionist. Going back to Jesus' words in chapter 13, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Verse 20, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. Perhaps some of the very same people who just days prior had shouted, Hosanna in the highest. The intensity of the crowd being stirred up in this moment by the religious leaders. The shouts of crucify this man. And the third time, Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. Pilate knew that the the Jewish leaders were not bringing these accusations out of concern for the well-being of the Roman Empire, but rather out of envy of Jesus, hatred toward Jesus. 
Again, Matthew and Mark's gospel accounts tell us as much. Pilate here declaring Jesus innocent for the third time, the the repetition meant to capture the attention of the reader, just like Peter's three denials. It's the messianic fulfillment, again, of Isaiah's description of the suffering servant, chapter 53, verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. As Peter would famously go on to declare, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The perfect, sinless lamb of God, innocent before his accusers. But they were urgent, verse 23 tells us, demanding with loud cries that Jesus should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Pontius Pilate, a man who made his decisions on the basis of whatever was most expedient, Whatever was most convenient, though improper or immoral at times. A man having, having here ordered the crucifixion of Jesus, though having found in Jesus no guilt deserving death. The crowd so urgent and demanding, declaring that only the crucifixion of Jesus will do. Consider this, and this is kind of how the world works. Pilate, the most powerful person in this gathering, in this moment, and yet the most powerless in succumbing to the demands of the Jewish leaders and people. Probably having clawed most of his life to try to get that very power and authority. Notice that he never declares Jesus guilty, not once. Punishing him as guilty, though declaring him innocent. All the while releasing an insurrectionist and murderer, treating Barabbas as innocent, though having declared him guilty. Jesus here handed over to the will of the people, verse 25, yet at the same time carrying out the perfect will of the Father for our salvation. You and I, like Barabbas, on the basis of our our own merit, guilty. On death row, in a prison of our own making. No way to free ourselves any more than Barabbas could have secured his own pardon. And yet, Christ the innocent one was condemned to die that we, the guilty, might be set free. One of the most famous verses in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake, Paul says, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The pardon of Barabbas in this morning's passage, a picture of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. His crucifixion, our justification. His condemnation, our pardon. His shackles, our freedom. Coming back to the very first words of this great book of the Bible. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken, Luke says, to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, 
It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Why? That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. We've talked about this from the very beginning of this series. That Luke composed this writing that the reader might have certainty. In the words of one commentator, Luke's gospel account is the gospel of knowing for sure. Luke writes that that we might have assurance regarding the Son of Man who came to seek and save the lost. A certainty of, of faith that each of us must profess for ourselves. More than that, Luke writes that we might follow Jesus as our Lord and God as an outworking of the sure knowledge of who he is. That we might not only see Jesus for who he truly is, the Lord's anointed having come, that we might believe on him, that we might repent of our sins and trust in him, but two, that we might leave our nets, so to speak, and follow him, giving our lives to him in glad submission. In the words of the Jewish leaders who had no idea of both the irony and tragedy of what they were saying, what further testimony do we need? Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah, the anointed one, and Savior. Jesus is the Son of Man, the one seated at the right hand of God who will someday return to set all things right. Jesus is the Son of God, the one and only begotten of the Father. Mocked as a prophet, he's the true prophet. Ridiculed as a king, he's the king of kings. The truly innocent one who suffered in the place of sinners like you and me, that we, the guilty ones deserving of the shackles of death and hell, might go free. He who, consider this, remained silent on his day of judgment, that he might speak up in defense of we who trust in him on that great day to come. Whether for the first or 10,000th time, the response this morning is, is simple. It's to repent of your sins and to trust in Jesus in faith, leaving your nets and giving your life to him in glad submission. He's a sufficient savior and a worthy king.